Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about case 22-0613 in Delaware Chancery Court. What's that? You haven't memorized the docket number yet? Well, maybe you know it by the case caption, Twitter v. Musk. It's a case that gets at essential questions about corporate law, the corporate law business, and about shareholder capitalism in general. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Well, it's come to this. Twitter is taking Elon Musk to court to force him to go through with his $44 billion purchase of the social media company. And it's not just any court, but Delaware Chancery Court, the venue for nearly all of the most epic corporate clashes in American history. Twitter seems to think it has a pretty good case against the multi-billionaire. It said it only needs a four-day trial and is asking the court to expedite the case. And just today, July 19th, a judge ruled in its favor and set a trial date for October. This suit is undoubtedly going to provide a ton of billable hours to a lot of attorneys. But if you work in the corporate law field, there's got to be some anxiety somewhere in the back of your head. Is the potential implosion of this deal a sign of things to come in an economy that's headed toward, dare I say, a recession? We're going to talk about that and a lot more with Bloomberg Law reporter Matt Boltman and with Ed Hammond, who covers the M&A markets for Bloomberg News, and who spoke to us from the bustling BN newsroom in Midtown Manhattan. Matt recently wrote a story about what the Delaware court could force Elon Musk to do, and boy, it is a lot. But first, I asked Ed to get us all up to speed on how this saga began and how it wound up here. So Elon Musk um, had been sort of making hints that he wanted to do something with Twitter for a while. Uh, He built a position in the stock. He suggested he was going to go activist. He then said he wasn't going to go activist, um, but might have some board representation. He then uh, announced that he was going to uh, acquire the company and and indeed quite quickly moved to agreeing to acquire the company and sign a deal uh, with Twitter at what at the time looked like a fairly full price and subsequently looks like a very full price. And Mr. Musk himself has decided is, is too full a price and has, has tried in various ways uh, to extricate himself from any kind of deal. Um, and that brings us right the way to where we are today, which is that the, the two parties here, Twitter and Elon Musk, um, are headed to court uh, because Musk essentially has terminated the deal, citing the issue of spam bots as being his reason for not wanting to do this. And the, the proliferation of spam bots being much greater than, than Twitter has, has disclosed publicly is what he claims. Twitter says this is nonsense, um, that he essentially has buyer's remorse. Uh, and so they're going to go to court, it looks like, uh, and be in front of a judge in Delaware to decide whether or not Musk has to close it uh, as agreed or whether he has any legitimate reason to get out of this transaction. Now, I mean, this was a strange situation when it started, when uh, Elon Musk first announced his intention to buy Twitter, and it's only gotten more strange since then. Um, you cover deals for a living. This is what you do. Is this the weirdest story you've ever covered on the deals beat, or is this actually not as weird as it seems? It's weird in, in lots of ways that I think are unique. Um, in other ways, it's it's not that weird. I think there are a couple of things that, that sort of stand out as being highly unusual here. One is just the the level of interest it's generated. Now, that's for an obvious reason, or two obvious reasons. Twitter is something that everyone uh, is is fairly familiar with, and a lot of journalists, if not all journalists, use uh, prolifically. 
Um, so there's a lot of commentary on Twitter about the Twitter deal. Uh, similarly, Musk is, you know, arguably the most famous capitalist in the world at the moment um, and, and a great source of headlines, both uh, traditional corporate financial headlines, but also, uh, you know, more salacious, uh, titillating things around his love life, his, uh, his seemingly insatiable appetite to sire children, um, and, and various other things he, he's always undertaking, like going... Uh, into space. Um, I, I think, to me, the most unusual thing about this deal is you, you've never, or at least in my experience, I've never seen a company be the target of an acquisition where the acquirer is essentially using that company and using its product to attack the company and attack the deal uh, in a way that is is extremely material. I mean, whatever the, the merits or lack thereof of Musk's arguments, the damage he has done to Twitter um, as a matter of, of its stock and the value of the company since deciding he doesn't want to do this deal is significant and undeniable. I mean, he has wiped many billions of dollars, dollars of value and in doing so has created this huge spread between what the company is worth today, you know, on a, on a market cap basis and what he has agreed to pay for it. Right. I mean, I guess I'm, that's a really good point. I'm trying to think of a like pre-internet example of this. And I guess the metaphor here, and it's not a perfect metaphor, would be if you're the host of a TV show on a network and you decide you want to buy that network, but then you devote all your programming on your TV show to trashing the network that you're on and that you want to buy. I mean, is that essentially what's going on here or, or is, is it even does that not quite fit? That's a sort of approximation, except the difference there is that the, the host on the network in that example would have already have been an employee of the network, whereas Musk right, is an outsider. Right. This, is, this is more like if, uh, you know, when Murdoch was, was wanting to take over the Wall Street Journal, if the, the Bancroft family had given Murdoch, you know, a significant number of pages in the paper to, to daily uh, write about why he should own it and then write about why actually it was a garbage paper, wasn't worth what he had agreed to pay for it, and he shouldn't be forced to buy it, even though he had signed the legally binding document saying he was going to buy it. Yeah. So, you know, this is certainly the most high-profile deal that's in progress right now. I mean, I'm not a deals expert, but I feel confident in saying that. But there are a lot of other deals that are pending right now, and there are, I'm sure, some other deals that are also imploding because of what's happening in the stock market. We're seeing double-digit declines right now in asset values. Tell me what you're seeing right now. Are you seeing other deals fall apart uh, that are in progress? There's a lot of conversations that I think either started uh you know, earlier this year and are now coming uh, coming apart because obviously the, the valuations that were being discussed have, have changed materially and, and therefore uh, buyers and sellers have very different ideas of what something might be worth. And so conversations that sort of started, I think, have, have quietened down and maybe in some cases died altogether. Where deals are signed, um, traditionally, particularly if they're deals involving a, a Delaware target, it's very hard to just get out of the deal because you don't like the direction of the market. Yes, there are certain things that can trigger uh, a, a buyer being able to walk away from the deal, such as the financing falling apart or regulatory issues. But just saying, I don't like the way the markets look versus when I signed up to this deal, so I'm not going to do it, is not an out. That doesn't get you any kind of uh, clause to, to walk away. Um, but certainly dialogue has slowed down. I think, you know, sellers believe that... Uh, 
they're going to bounce back. And so they don't want to sell now when they're 30% lower or cheaper than they were at the beginning of the year. And, and buyers, similarly, you know, it's the scenario of not wanting to catch a falling knife. They think if they wait a couple of months, then maybe the, uh, the target company will, will be even cheaper than it is today. Um, and, and equally, it, it's just a hard time to go out and execute on a, a sort of meaningful transaction uh, even if you believe the value is good, because getting the finance is going to be quite difficult. Getting the shareholder approval or support for your deal is probably quite difficult. So I think, yes, we have seen a, a pronounced slowdown in M&A, uh, certainly in the second quarter of this year. Um, and, and we'll probably continue to see that right the way, I would think, through the rest of the year before we begin to pick up again in 2023. So this question is for for either of you, for whoever wants to answer it. But I'm wondering, you know, we talk about what's good for the legal industry, what's bad for the legal industry here on the podcast a lot. I don't know whether this is good or bad, because on the one hand, you know, uh, deals falling apart, you know, requires lawyers. Obviously, there are going to be a lot of lawyers involved in the Twitter Musk court case, to put it mildly. But on the other hand, I mean... The, a lot of lawyers live in, and die on M&A transactions. And if there are going to be fewer deals in the future, that's that can't be good. Matt, do you want to weigh in? I could take a stab at it. I mean, I I think when you hear people talk about kind of the nature of these deals, it's not uncommon that um, some of these markets are, are cyclical in nature. So when you have a, a law firm, maybe on one hand, um, IPOs or, or M&As are slowing down, the bankruptcy proceedings are, their practice is, is booming. So this isn't necessarily uncharted territory. People have seen this this type of thing before, and um, it's expecting maybe a bounce back at some point in the future. I, well, I, so I'd agree with that. I think there is obviously cyclicality in in the M and A market, and a lot of the bigger law firms are, are protected somewhat on the downside because they have big restructuring businesses, which is a sort of um, you know the the obvious uh, colliery to, to to a booming M and A market. Um, but I think. Law firms, uh, investment banks, PR firms, you know, all of these sort of apparatus that exists around deal making, it thrives on, if you like, the velocity of capital. And when you have a, a slowdown or, or a cessation of deal activity, uh, those firms struggle. There, there is less business to go around. There's less fees to go around. Uh, and the fees that do go around probably are going to be slightly smaller just because the, the you know, the pool of value is, is shrinking. So I think it's not it's not great for law firms, but equally lawyers are, are very adept and and seemingly endlessly skillful at finding ways of um, of, of making action that pays fees. For sure, let's get back to Twitter and Musk. Um, Matt, you wrote a really fantastic story about what the Delaware court that Ed referenced earlier can do to Musk if he loses. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What power does it have to force uh, Elon Musk to buy this company if he doesn't want to? Yeah. So Twitter has said that Musk should be forced to honor his agreement and pay $44 billion for the company. There seems to be a general consensus at this point, based on what we've seen so far, that Twitter has the upper hand from a, a legal perspective. So if the case doesn't settle and a judge finds that, that Musk has no good reason to walk away from the deal, it is possible that the court orders the deal be completed. The court has ordered specific performance in the past. Last year, for example, the Chancery Court ordered a private equity buyer to close its $550 million acquisition of a cake decorating company. Ultimately, a judge will sit down and ask whether it's fair to order specific performance. That equation would almost have to include the 
political and social consequences of ordering Musk to buy Twitter. On the other hand, the, the sources that we talked to have said that not requiring Musk to follow through with the deal for no good reason could call into question the credibility of Delaware corporate law. Uh, judges there want mergers, merger agreements to be predictably enforced. So, Matt, one thing I wanted to ask you about is why doesn't I mean, isn't this what the breakup fee is for in a contract? You put in a contract that if someone wants to walk away from a deal, there's a, a fee. Why doesn't Twitter just want Elon Musk to just pay this fee and walk away? Why does it want to be owned by someone that doesn't want to own it? I th- I think in the contract, the breakup fee is capped at $1 billion. I think if you look at what Elon promised to pay – um, compared to what Twitter is worth now, that $1 billion doesn't really compare. So I think the best case, maybe f- from all parties' perspectives, is a settlement agreement. Twitter making must pay more than $1 billion to walk away. But to get that, Twitter may have to show that it's prepared to go after specific performance and that Elon, absent a settlement, will be forced to pay $44 million to get Twitter. Uh, and finally, uh, I want to turn back to Ed, uh, and I want to get your answer to that question. You know, why why would a company want to be purchased and owned by someone who it seems like has expressly stated that they don't want to own this company? It's, it's you know, what's what's going on here? Is it just is it like what Matt said? It's just about the money. They just want Musk to pay what he said he would pay, or is there something else going on here? What I think. That- to answer the question, you really have to address what is what is it when you say why why would it or why would they? I mean, Twitter, interestingly, have, have taken the position of being a sort of entirely apparently shareholder capital based business, and that's who they're answering to, and 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 rightly therefore, as fiduciaries of the shareholder value, they're saying, well, Musk has agreed to pay more than we think this company is worth, um, and we're not going to let him off the hook. We're going to force him to pay or we're going to do everything we can to force him to pay that price because that is in the best interest of our shareholders. Um, you, you you could take the view, and I think you were sort of hinting at this in your question, that you know if you went with the more sort of holistic stakeholder capitalism-based model for which you know there isn't really a legal basis, uh, you, you could say, well, you're going to have an owner in Musk who has, has said he doesn't want to own the company. Presumably, most of the people currently working at Twitter uh, don't feel particularly excited about the prospect of, of Musk. They don't feel very positive about him owning it. Uh, and there's also, a, I think, a real question about what does this mean for users of Twitter? What does this mean for, you know, Musk has said he, he wants to be a, a vanguard of free speech. Um, but, you know, that's his version of free speech. I'm not sure free speech is a sort of absolute um, objective quality. It's, it's whatever Musk, in this case, decides it is, if, if indeed he does end up owning it. So I think if you're the board of Twitter and you, you feel your responsibility first and foremost and perhaps only is to the shareholders, you are doing the right thing because you're saying, you know, this, this offer of whatever it is, 54.20 a share, is, is worth or values Twitter greatly more than we think it would be worth on a standalone basis. And, and you only need to look at the analyst com- commentary to see that that's probably right. And then when you overlay that with the damage that Musk has done to the business, if he is allowed out of this deal now, I, I mean, there are real questions about well, what does Twitter look like in, in the sort of post-Musk uh, landscape if it can't get a deal achieved. And I think it could go down a long way from here. 
That will do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our guest editor today is Greg Henderson. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.